0: Hey, Prime members, you can binge eight new episodes of the Mr. Ballin podcast one month early and all episodes ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Today's podcast features three stories that detail crimes that were caught on surveillance cameras. The audio from all three of these stories has been pulled from our main YouTube channel and has been remastered for today's episode. The links to the original YouTube videos are in the description. The first story you'll hear is called Safe Neighborhood, and it's about a woman who captured something awful in her backyard. The second story you'll hear is called Killing Time, and it's a story that includes security footage of a killer right before they attacked. And the third and final story you'll hear is called Eye in the Sky, and it's about critical evidence that was discovered on CCTV footage in London. But before we get into today's stories, if you're a fan of the Strange, Dark, and Mysterious delivered in story format, then you've come to the right podcast because that's all we do, and we upload twice a week, once on Monday and once on Thursday. So if that's of interest to you, in your will, give the Amazon Music Follow button a treasure map that leads to a pot of gold. But replace the gold with a $6 gift certificate to Blockbuster. Okay, let's get into our first story called Safe Neighborhood. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash ballin or text ballin to 500 500. That's audible.com slash ballin or text the word ballin to 500 500 to try Audible for free for 30 days. Audible.com slash ballin. In June of 2015, 30-year-old mother of two, Lisa McKenzie, lived in what she called a safe neighborhood in Bridgend, Wales. One day when she was cleaning up her kids' toys in her backyard, she noticed something strange about her back door. She thought maybe one of her kids had taken paint and slapped it across the back door, or perhaps it was even mud. But then when she walked up to the door itself, she could tell that there were two very deep gouges in the door right next to the locking mechanism. Also, the key portion of the lock had loads of scratches all over it. Initially, she thought, maybe these have been here the whole time and I just haven't noticed them until right now. But when she looked at the two gouge marks in the door, they looked fresh. Since she did not own a dog and didn't know of any other dogs in the area that might come into her property that could have scratched up the door, she figures, okay, it's got to be my kids. So she calls her kids outside and she points at the marks on the door and the kids swear they didn't do it. And they say, I don't remember ever seeing that. That's new. At this point, Lisa has this sinking feeling that someone must have tried to break into our house, but she doesn't want to scare her kids. So she tells them to go back in the house. They go inside and she's standing in front of the door and she's just looking at the marks thinking like, what do I do? And she notices in the bushes right next to the door, there's something silver sitting in the bush. She bent down and picked up a wire that she immediately recognized as a windshield wiper insert, because she had recently had to replace her windshield wipers because one of the inserts was missing. She also noticed this wire that was very rigid had been bent up at the end like a hook, and it was at this point that Lisa went from maybe someone's trying to break in to definitely someone just tried to break in. They're using the wire from my windshield to try to defeat the lock. Lisa didn't make much money, but with the money she did have, she went out and got the most expensive, sophisticated surveillance camera that she could put on the back of her house to monitor that back door. And in addition to the camera, starting that night, Lisa began compulsively checking every door, every lock, every window, everything that could secure the house. She would check three, four, five times before going to bed every single night. And then the next morning, she would get up and she would review the footage from the night before. And for the next several weeks, no one tried to break into her house. There was no suspicious activity recorded on the camera. Everything was normal. Until Monday, July 13th, when she woke up and noticed her back gate, not her door, but the gate leading into her yard was slightly open. Now, because she was obsessively checking every door, every window, every lock, that included that gate. Meaning the night before, she had triple checked that that gate was shut and locked. So for it to be open right now meant something had happened the night before. And so without even going outside, she goes right to her security camera footage and she would say that what she saw made her physically ill. Earlier that morning at 1.15 a.m., an unknown man wearing a rain jacket and gloves walks up to the back of their house and puts his hands and his face right up against the window and starts looking in the window. And then he steps back, pulls a flashlight out and starts looking in the kitchen with this flashlight, just brazenly looking in the house. And at some point he puts the flashlight down and looks up and clearly notices the camera that she has installed. He looks at it for a minute and then just kind of shrugs and goes right back to shining his light into the kitchen before going around to the door itself and trying the door and fidgeting with the door to open it. It was locked. He goes to the window, he tries to open the window, it's locked. And he would make his way down the side of the house trying to open all of the windows until walking around to the back side of the house where there wasn't a camera. And then when he couldn't open any of the windows or doors because Lisa was diligent about locking everything, he must have just given up and left. Lisa's horrified, she gets in touch with police, she shows them the footage, but unfortunately, his face was kind of obscured in the video, and so they were never able to identify him. Our next story is called Killing Time. Missy Beavers was a wife, a mother of 3 girls, and a hardcore fitness instructor. She lived in Midlothian, Texas, and she taught a fitness boot camp out of a local church at least 1 day a week, every week. Missy was extremely bubbly and outgoing, and everybody seemed to really like her, and her personality really shined on social media where she was an avid Facebook user, often posting multiple times a day, every day of the week. Missy would post information about upcoming fitness classes, either that she was teaching or that she was simply participating in. She would also post her own fitness regimen and her diet. She was just very focused on health. She also shared fairly personal things like pictures of her family and where they were going and what they were up to. And she left her personal cell phone right on her Facebook page. So clearly Missy was fine with kind of being out there. On April 17th, 2016, there was a weather report that came in that the next day there was gonna be really, really heavy rain, in particular in the morning. And Missy's class was scheduled for the next morning at 5 a.m. And she started getting calls and text messages from the people who were going to that class, asking, is this class still gonna happen? By 7.55 p.m. that night, so many people had asked about it that she decided to just put a public post on her Facebook page addressing the weather. And it just said, if it's raining, we're still training. No excuses. You are gladiators. On the post, she included directions of how to get to the church, where this class was going to be in the church, what time they were starting, and what they could expect. Later that night at 9.23 p.m., she did another Facebook post that said, going to bed, I have to get up tomorrow at 3.30. The next day at 4.16 in the morning, a street security camera picked up Missy pulling into the church's parking lot. Even though her class didn't start until 5 a.m., she liked to get there early to make sure the classroom was set up and to warm up a little bit and make sure she was super motivated and cheerful as soon as they walked in. The security cameras inside the church capture Missy walking in through the front doors at 4.20 in the morning. Then, just before 5 a.m., the first couple of students arrived at the classroom, and they walk in to find Missy laying on the ground, bleeding from her head, totally unresponsive. They call 911, police and paramedics show up, and as soon as they get there, they pronounce Missy dead. Initially, there was some speculation that she might have fallen and hit her head, but they noticed all these puncture marks in her head that looked intentionally inflicted, like someone had struck her. And later, when they reviewed the security footage from inside the church, it was confirmed that she definitely was murdered. Earlier that morning at 3.50 a.m., so 26 minutes before Missy arrives in the church parking lot, an unknown figure wearing police tactical gear from head to toe breaks into the church. From 3.50 in the morning when they first get inside the church to 4.20 in the morning when Missy walks through the front doors, this unknown figure just kind of strolls casually up and down the halls of this church. It looks like they were carrying a hammer or perhaps a crowbar. And periodically as they're kind of casually walking down the hall, they would turn to a window of a door and they would break it with whatever they're holding in their hand. And then they would just keep walking on. Like there was no reason for them to break the window. They're just bored. And this was actually an important point that police would make about this footage. This person walking around does not appear to want to vandalize the church. I mean, they're breaking a couple windows but they could have done a lot more damage to the building and they didn't. They don't appear to be looking to steal anything, and in fact, later, police would confirm that nothing was stolen. What it looks like they're doing is just kind of wasting time, like they have some clear objective for being here, but they can't do it quite yet. They're waiting for a trigger of some kind, and it would turn out that that trigger was Missy walking through those doors at 4.20 in the morning. As soon as Missy made her way into the classroom, the assailant followed her and proceeded to beat her to death with whatever they were holding in their hand. By the time police arrived a little after 5am, the suspect was long gone. Initially, police believed it was going to be fairly easy to identify who killed Missy. The person on camera wearing the tactical gear had a very distinctive gait with their feet turned out and they walked with a bit of a limp and they had very slouched posture. And the police figured as soon as we put this surveillance footage out in the public domain, someone's going to come forward and say they recognize this person. But despite the hundreds of leads that poured in from people after watching this video saying, oh yeah, I know this person. Well, the police checked into all of them and they all checked out. Everybody had an alibi. And so years later, the police are still not able to identify who killed Missy or why. And so her case remains unsolved. The next and final story of today's episode is called Eye in the Sky. On the morning of Friday, June eleventh, 2021, in a suburb in the northwest of London, a man named David Klein woke up to his early morning alarm. David rolled out of bed, he got dressed, and he very carefully made his way downstairs to start getting ready for work. As David moved around this old brick house he was in, he was very careful not to make much noise because he didn't want to wake up his roommate, a 67-year-old widow named Deborah Chong. Deborah was technically David's landlord, but she didn't charge him any rent. The two had met in church, and when Deborah had learned that David didn't really have a place to live, she had immediately volunteered her house and told David to come live with her for free. David couldn't believe her generosity and immediately took her up on the offer. And then after he had moved in, he learned that he was far from the first person who Deborah had allowed to come and live in her house rent-free. It would turn out Deborah, whose late husband had given her a ton of money in his will, felt like it was her responsibility and her duty to use her ample resources to house people that were kind of down on their luck. She said it was her way of serving God. Also, David got the impression that Deborah just liked having people living with her in her home. It made her happy. But David would notice a distinct change in Deborah's personality around the time the COVID-19 pandemic started in early 2020. At that time, Deborah, like many other people, was very concerned about this global health crisis and wanted to learn more about what was happening and what could happen in the future. And so the way she did that is she obsessively began going on youtube and began consuming covid19 related content and political content surrounding covid19 and the pandemic and lockdowns but instead of becoming more educated and well-versed on what was happening in the world deborah's constant consumption of covid19 related content on youtube really just made her feel incredibly stressed out and anxious and as David began to see firsthand, Deborah's sudden high levels of anxiety really began wreaking havoc on her life. Years earlier, Deborah was officially diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia, which is a mental illness that causes bouts of psychosis, which is like losing touch with reality. Now, pre COVID, pre pandemic, her symptoms were so mild that she basically led a totally normal life. But once the pandemic started and her YouTube quest for information caused that spike in stress and anxiety, it caused a spike in her symptoms. And so she began suffering from frequent and lengthy hallucinations and delusions. One time, David came home from work, and when he went inside the house, he found Deborah sitting at the kitchen table, diligently writing these handwritten letters to various British public figures. And when David asked her what she was doing, she explained to him that these British public figures were speaking directly to her through the YouTube videos she was watching, and so these handwritten letters were her response letters back to these public figures. In May of 2021, Deborah's hallucinations had gotten so bad that doctors intervened and forcibly injected her with an antipsychotic medication. And while these meds definitely reduced Deborah's symptoms, they also had some pretty negative side effects as well. Namely, they totally curbed her appetite and they made sleeping really challenging. And so pretty quickly, those two side effects combined made Deborah feel really weak and tired basically all the time, to the point where she sometimes needed David to literally hold her up by her arm just to walk down the street. Now, David, of course, had no problem helping Deborah with whatever she wanted. I mean, she had done so much for him, but David had work, and so he was only really available to help her in the mornings and in the evenings during the week. And so he had actually spoken to Deborah about hiring a full-time caretaker that could live with her and just take care of her at the level she needed all the time. And Deborah was open to it. She actually called a company that offered that service, and they told her they would get someone out to her, but it would take some time before her caretaker was actually assigned to her. Now, David was really pleased with this development, but he really wished they would speed it up. Because again, every time he was away all day at work, he knew Deborah was home by herself, and so he was just so worried something was going to happen to her when he was gone. So after David gathered up all of his things and very quietly made his way from the kitchen to the front door, he paused for a moment and said a silent prayer in his head for Deborah's safety and protection while he was away at work, and then he opened the front door, quietly went outside, shut the door behind him, and headed off to work. A few hours later, David came home from work, he went back inside of the house, and the first thing he did is he called out for Deborah. But Deborah didn't call back, and the house was very quiet. And so David took off his shoes and walked around the first floor, kind of calling out for Deborah as he walked. But again, there was no answer. And so after walking the whole first floor and not finding her, he yelled one more time really loudly Hey, Deborah, are you here? And after hearing nothing, he pulled out his phone and he called Deborah. And as the phone was ringing, he could hear Deborah's phone ringing upstairs. Okay, maybe Deborah is upstairs. She fell asleep, and her phone's just next to her on the bed. And so, with David's phone still calling Deborah's phone, David began walking upstairs. And when he got to the top of the stairs, he just followed the sound of Deborah's ringing phone into her bedroom. And when he went in there, Deborah was not in there. Her phone was, though, and so were her glasses. They were both just sitting on the bed. Those were two items that Deborah would bring with her anywhere she went. And so trying not to panic, David called out a few more times for Deborah, but again, there was no answer. And so after quickly searching her bedroom and not finding her, he searched all the other rooms upstairs. But again, she just was not there. She was not in the house. And so David began calling and texting friends from church and other people that knew Deborah to see if anybody had heard from her or knew where she was. But no one did, and the only people who had recently talked to her said she was totally incoherent, talking about spirits and demons and the destruction of all mankind. And so, believing Deborah must be suffering from a schizophrenic hallucination somewhere out in the city, David picked up his phone again and he called the police. When the police showed up at the house, David filled them in on what was going on and the police told him, hey, look, we'll go back and review all of the CCTV camera footage taken from outside of your house. We're bound to see footage of Deborah leaving her house at some point and then we can just watch where she goes. And so David felt reassured and the police felt very confident. But when the police went back to the station and began reviewing all of this security footage taken from roughly outside of Deborah's house, there was no footage of her ever leaving the house. There was only footage the day before of Deborah going into the house, but she never left. And so naturally, the police went back to Deborah and David's house and they thoroughly searched that house, believing Deborah had to be in there somewhere. But despite searching everywhere in this house, in every crawl space, in the attic, the basement, every closet, everywhere, she wasn't there. It would take the police nearly a month, but they would eventually figure out where Deborah went. And to say they were surprised at where she went is a massive understatement. But to understand what happened, we have to go back to the very beginning of Deborah's very strange disappearance story. It all started about 10 months before Deborah actually went missing in August of 2020. That month, Deborah met a 36 year old woman named Gemma Mitchell at one of her church prayer groups. Like Deborah, Gemma was very religious, and so the two women became fast friends despite being 30 years apart in age. Deborah would confide in Gemma about her mental health struggles, and Gemma would confide in Deborah about her house slash financial troubles. Basically, Gemma, a couple years earlier, had given money to a contractor to fix up her house, but the contractor had taken her money, not done any work, and then run off, basically robbing Gemma. But Gemma really needed to do these renovations, and so she wound up hiring a second contractor who did begin work, but during this process, Gemma realized she would never be able to recover the money that was stolen from her from the first contractor. And so when she realized she wasn't going to get that money, she knew she would not be able to fully pay the second contractor for his work. And so when the second contractor found out he was not going to get paid, he stopped work immediately, despite the fact that there was no working heat in Gemma's house, and there was a huge hole in her roof. But Gemma had no way to fix this, and so she and her mom were just living in this house that was just totally freezing all the time. Deborah had been so moved by Gemma's situation that very quickly after meeting her, she offered £200,000 to Gemma to finish the renovations on her house, under the condition that one room in Gemma's new house would be solely dedicated to Christian ministry. Gemma was overwhelmed with gratitude. She could not believe that Deborah was willing to do this for her, and so of course she agreed to her terms without any hesitation. After that, the two women began texting all the time about this renovation project, Deborah would suggest paint colors and different things to do with the inside of the house, and Gemma would text updates about the different contractors she had talked to who could do pieces of the renovation. Deborah was always inviting Gemma over to her house, and she even began referring to Gemma as her sister. And Gemma loved it, because Gemma actually had always wanted to be much closer with her own biological sister, but they had kind of drifted apart. And so for Gemma, Deborah really did feel like the sister she was supposed to have. But their relationship was about to change drastically. In May of 2021, so eight months after the two women met for the first time, and one month before Deborah would vanish. Debra was forcibly injected with that antipsychotic medication in order to combat her paranoid schizophrenia. And right after Debra got this injection, she began treating Gemma totally differently. She basically stopped communicating altogether with Gemma, and then in the rare times she would text Gemma, it was just to berate her about being a hoarder or being too messy and sloppy. Gemma didn't really know what to make of her friend's new behavior, but she knew, you know, Deborah was going through a really tough time, and so Gemma just kind of took the abuse and didn't say anything. When Gemma did try to talk to Deborah by asking about the renovation project, which was quickly approaching on the horizon, Deborah would tell Gemma not to talk about it, that it was too stressful and just don't bring it up again. And then one day, Deborah just called Gemma out of the blue and said, I'm not funding the renovation anymore. It's over. You're on your own. Gemma felt totally devastated and pleaded with Deborah to please reconsider. But Deborah was not about to change her mind. And in fact, on this call, she would tell Gemma, you know, hey, you should just sell your house. And in fact, until you sell your house, don't contact me. And then Deborah hung up. Gemma didn't know what to do. She felt like she really could not sell her house because it was kind of like a family heirloom that had been passed down for generations. And so it just felt wrong to sell it. But on the other hand, without help, she would never have enough money to fix the house up. And so she was totally stuck. And she felt like her only option was to go to Deborah and have one more conversation and just really plead her case and see if maybe there was some chance Deborah would change her mind. So, on the morning of June eleventh, 2021, so this is the day that Deborah goes missing, Gemma showed up on Deborah's porch and rang her doorbell. She arrived just after David had left for work. A few moments later, Deborah slowly made her way to the door, she opened it up, she saw Gemma out there and asked, you know, what's going on, and Gemma just very politely said, would you please let me come in, and can we just talk one more time about the renovation? And Deborah, who was not very enthused at the idea of having this conversation, said, you know what? Okay, come on in. And so Gemma would go inside and the two women would go sit down and they'd exchange some pleasantries. And then at some point when there was a break in the conversation, Gemma brought up the renovation. She had actually written out this whole speech about how incredible Deborah was and how these renovations, if they went through with them, would mean so much to her, Gemma, and her family. But as Gemma is going through this pitch, Deborah just cuts her off and says, Gemma, I'm sorry, but my decision is final. I am not paying for the renovation. I'm sorry. A little while later, both Gemma and Deborah would leave Deborah's house and there actually is CCTV footage that shows the pair walking on Deborah's street right outside of her house. However, the reason the police did not flag this footage when they first were scanning all of that footage to figure out where Deborah went is because when you watch the footage of the two women together, it actually only looks like one person. It looks like Gemma. But Gemma is wheeling a huge suitcase right behind her, and as it would turn out, Debra was inside of it. It's assumed that after Debra was forcibly given that antipsychotic medication for her paranoid schizophrenia, that it really leveled her out. She was suddenly thinking very clearly for the first time in months. And in this clear state of mind, it's believed she realized the 200,000 pound gift she was giving to Gemma, someone she barely knew, was a bad decision. And so she just wanted to back out of it. And so, back inside of Deborah's house, when Deborah and Gemma are sitting there, and Gemma is doing her speech to try to convince Deborah to change her mind, and Deborah is saying, No, my final answer is no, it's over, that's when Gemma snapped. She grabbed a blunt object, we don't know what it was, and she smashed Deborah right over the skull and fractured her skull, causing Deborah to fall unconscious and slump onto the floor. And then Gemma leapt on top of Deborah's unconscious body. Gemma pulled out a knife and cut Deborah's head off. And then afterward, Gemma cleaned up all the blood in the house and then stuffed Deborah's body and head into that big suitcase. And then after Gemma stole several legal documents and a copy of Deborah's will, she walked out of Deborah's house with Deborah in the suitcase behind her. Gemma would walk with Deborah all the way back to her house, and then she would leave the suitcase with Deborah still inside of it in her backyard. She would just leave it there for two weeks, and then after those two weeks, Gemma would take the suitcase again, still with Deborah's body inside of it, and transport it 250 miles away to a seaside town where she would dump it. And in that seaside town, some vacationers would discover Deborah's body and call it into the police. On July 6th, 2021, police would arrest Gemma on suspicion of murder. When they arrested her, they showed up at her house and used a battering ram to smash in her front door, and then when the door finally literally smashed open, Gemma was just standing there waiting for the police as if she knew this was going to happen and she's just waiting to be taken away. When the police would actually go into Deborah's house and search it, they would find a fake copy of Deborah's will where all of Deborah's estate was handed over to Gemma and Gemma's mother. In October of 2022, Gemma was found guilty of murder and sentenced to life in prison with a minimum term of 34 years. To this day, Gemma insists she did not kill Deborah. Thank you for listening to the Mr. Ballin Podcast. If you enjoyed today's stories, be sure to check out our YouTube channel, which is just called Mr. Ballin, where we have hundreds more stories just like this one, but many of them are not available on this podcast. They're only on YouTube. Again, the YouTube channel is just called Mr. Ballin. So that's going to do it. I really appreciate your support. Until next time, see ya.